This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. As Chandler said, I'm going to be talking about uh, the general topic of moral relativism and the natural law. How many of you heard the, ever heard the term natural law? So, so figured most of you have. So when you hear the term natural law, most people, I mean, it just, I guess it depends, right? So uh, if, if you're talking about, let's say, uh, if you're like in the hard sciences and you hear the term natural law, you may think of something like scientific law, right? The laws uh, that we usually associate with the hard science, sciences, like the law of gravity, right? But the natural law, the understanding of the natural law is, is, is something like this. It's those things that we can know about the human good that incline us to do the good. So when people kind of throw words out there in a way that is meaningful to them when they make judgments, like that's unjust or you're unfair or you should treat that person with dignity and respect. Or if you think of something like uh, the words written by Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail when he talks about uh, that a law that uh, is unjust is not a law. And there he appeals to something called the natural law. It's those things that we can know about the human good apart from the laws and customs that we inherit from our own societies. So what does moral relativism have to do with this? I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk first about moral relativism and, and, and as a way to introduce you to how to think about the natural law. So you should have a, a, a study sheet or a, a, a note. Does anyone not have the, the outline or the notes? Okay, so, so if you look at the top of, of the notes, I begin with, here are some moral rules. I'm going to read them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Do not intentionally kill the innocent. Do not take what is not yours without permission. Parents ought to take care for their infant children. Shun ignorance and try to live at peace with your neighbors, and one ought not to rape anyone. So if you, let's say, immediately, do you think these moral rules, and, and, and these aren't the only ones, by the way, uh, supposing you believe that uh, one ought to obey these moral rules regardless of when one lives, like what year it is, or what age you live in, or if you believe that uh, culture doesn't matter, or place, that these moral rules are, in a sense, always everywhere, in every place, in every time true, then you are a moral objectivist. You believe that there are moral norms or rules that apply in all times and all places, and to everybody. That you may be thinking, well, what about cases where people don't seem to believe them? And we, we can actually discuss that later because those are some of the 
issues that actually get raised uh, by the namesake of the Aquinas, uh, the Thomistic Institute, Thomas Aquinas. He actually deals with the question of why is it that it seems as though people sometimes don't believe some of these moral norms or these goods. And it turns out what Aquinas says is that sometimes there are cases where we're drawn away by our emotions or passions. Uh, think about the person that, let's say, kills another person in a, in a fit of rage, right? They still may very well believe it's wrong to kill innocent persons, but at that moment, that idea sort of vanishes from their mind, right? On the other hand, if you, let's say, believe that morality depends exclusively on one's time, place, or culture, that there is no universal, unchanging, objective morality that transcends society and circumstance, then you're a moral relativist. Uh, you, you don't deny that there are moral rules if you're a moral relativist. You think most moral relativists believe that there are moral rules, but they are culturally dependent. So some moral relativists will argue that you have a kind of obligation to obey the rules of your own culture or society, but perhaps not other cultures or societies, or it's wrong to judge other cultures or societies. Uh, and that's something that we'll be talking about in, in a few minutes. One of the motivations or reasons why people uh, become moral relativists or embrace moral relativism is because they think it establishes a kind of cross-cultural tolerance. So if you, if you, let's say, look at this list, again, love your neighbor as yourself, thou shall not commit adultery, do not intentionally kill the innocent, do not take what is not yours without permission. Parents ought to care for their infant children. Shun ignorance and try to live at peace with your neighbors. And one ought not to rape uh, anyone. If you think that those are not absolutely universally true, then you're a relativist. Right? Then you're a relativist. Um, another way to distinguish it is that moral objectivists think of morality as being more like mathematics than etiquette, whereas moral relativists tend to think of morality as being more like etiquette than mathematics. That is, there's, there, there's more of a kind of freewheeling nature to morality. Now, the Catholic Church teaches, and Thomas Aquinas, again, the namesake of the Thomistic Institute, teaches that morality is objective, that a person who believes in moral relativism may hesitate to consider the church. For this reason, and what we're gonna be talking about, uh, I think it's important as, as, as a Catholic to, to provide reasons for people as to why relativism is a mistaken view. And so what we're gonna look at is the reasons why people are moral relativists and why I don't think those reasons are actually very good reasons. So, in my experience, I found there are two kind of general arguments that people offer for relativism. Um, one, one argument, um, or two different reasons, and I'm gonna give a name for each, each reason. Uh, one reason is that there's just too much diversity on moral issues, both in and across cultures. And secondly, um, it's intolerant to believe that one's moral view is universally true and other views wrong, and we ought to be tolerant. So I'll call the first argument the argument from disagreement. 
And the second argument, the argument from tolerance. Now, one of the things I'm going to, I want to say about how to respond to these arguments is that, and I don't know how many of you have taken courses in philosophy or engaged in philosophical reasoning or have studied philosophy, but when, when one engages in a sort of philosophical argument or a critique of a philosophical point of view, like critiquing relativism, what will happen is that oftentimes you, there's an appeal to what I think you already know, but you are not conspicuously aware of it. So think about it this way. So I, this is an example from my experience. My first job uh, as a professor was at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, the UNLV. You've all heard of UNLV, I hope. Uh, I, I grew up in Las Vegas, uh, which is unusual. I guess it's not as unusual anymore. There's lots of people that live in Las Vegas. Uh, but I often say you don't really grow up in Las Vegas. You just live there a long time, right? Um, so when I was teaching at UNLV, I had a student who asked me in class, she, she asked, um, why is the truth important? And I answered, do you want the true answer or the false one? It should be, the, um, that's funny actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, the point of that response, the point of the example is to show you that in that case, what I did by that, that, by that little snarky quip, <laughs> do you want the true answer or the false one, is to draw out in her what I think she already believes. She already knows the truth is important. She wouldn't be asking me the question, right? So there are things like that, right, that, that, uh, that seem to be things that we already know or we can't not know but we may not be conspicuously aware of. And so the critique of relativism that I'm going to offer you to you this evening is a, is a way to kind of draw out what I think the relativist kind of already believes. In other words, the relativist may not really be a relativist. Once they understand what it means to be a relativist and what it means to say that morality is objective, by the way, to say that morality is objective is not to say that people never disagree. And I'll have more to say about that in a few minutes, but a lot of times our disagreements aren't necessarily over a moral principle. It's over something else, and we think it's a moral principle. So let's first, let me go over first the argument from disagreement. So disagreement is everywhere. So just think here in the United States, we have disagreements about lots of issues, uh, abortion, the nature of marriage. Uh, there are a variety of, of debates going on uh, in the United States about school curriculum and critical race theory, uh, uh, disagreements about whether the uh, United States should have left Afghanistan, right? And all these debates have a moral component to it, right? And they, and they typically deal with very deep questions about at least abortion and marriage, about human nature, who and what we are, right? So there's no doubt that people disagree on moral issues. Uh, not only the, those issues, there are others as well. Uh, internationally and 
throughout history, right? So um, some cultures practice polygamy. Uh, others uh, prohibit the killing and eating of cattle, uh, to cite but two examples. Uh, while other cultures practice monogamy and open up steak joints. Right? Um, but not, but look at history, right? There are, if you look at the history of the human race, uh, people practiced slavery, right? Uh, societies engaged in mass genocide, and they believed they were right. And so it seems as though that there is, in fact, real disagreement. And so um, if you want to frame it in the form of an argument, so the, the argument for disagreement is, goes something like this. It's clear that there are wide-ranging disagreements on moral questions, both in the present and in history. Therefore, there is no objective morality. There is no objective morality. So what about that argument? So let's, let's look at... Um, Let's look at it. Now, here I want to I, I, I want us to sort of appreciate why someone would be a relativist. When you think about, given the wide diversity uh, of moral opinions and practices across space and time, it's easy to see why someone could be a relativist, right? Uh, it should not surprise us that the two most widely read social scientists of the 20th century, uh, William Graham Sumner and Ruth Benedict, we're thoroughgoing relativists. In fact, if you've ever taken a course in uh, ethics, an introductory course in ethics, and you deal with the issue of relativism, typically every philosophy textbook that deals with relativism will have an article by either Sumner or Benedict. Right? In fact, I edited a textbook called Do the Right Thing, in which I republished in it Ruth Benedict's uh, famous article critiquing uh, moral objectivism, which she defends relativism. So they essentially argue what I just put in the form of a very brief premise and conclusion, namely, there's wide disagreement on moral issues, therefore, there is no objective morality. So it seems impressive as an argument, um, since it appears to be based on an undeniable fact that, in fact, there is wide moral disagreement. But I think it's a weak argument when we start to look at it more critically. So I'm going to go over four problems with this argue, the argument from disagreement. It's a matter of simple logic. The fact of moral disagreement does not entail moral relativism. That is, the fact that there are that people disagree about moral issues doesn't mean that nobody's right. I mean, imagine we disagreed about the shape of the earth. It wouldn't mean the earth had no shape, <laughs> right? The fact that people disagree, supposing I were to bring into the room, um, uh, uh, let's say Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler, <laughs> and I asked them to debate about human dignity, the fact that he disagreed wouldn't mean that one of them wasn't right or that neither of them was right. So the mere fact of disagreement, at least as a logical point, it doesn't prove that relativism is correct. Um, 
Second problem with the argument is that disagreement, so in order for the argument of disagreement to work, this is a, this is a slightly technical point here. So I'm gonna, I, so I may, I may have to repeat myself on this. Uh, it's a subtle point, but I think it's an important one. The defender of relativism in his, his or her argument is saying that whenever people disagree about, or that he's assuming, or she is assuming, whenever people disagree about issue X, therefore there is no right answer. That's what the person is assuming. But think about it. If that were the case, it'd be really easy to refute relativism. You can at that point just announce that you disagree with that premise. Right? It, it, it's, 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 it's a self-refuting premise. What's self-refuting? Well, if I say something like, don't believe anything I say, or supposing I had a shirt on that said, the statement on the back of this shirt is false, and in the front it says, the, back, the statement on the front of this shirt is true. So the mere, so the premise that, when, that whenever people disagree, nobody's right, all you have to do is to say, I disagree with that premise. And then based on the premise's own assertion, you can then, it's now refuted, <laughs> right? So the mere fact, again, it, this doesn't prove, by the way, that moral objectivism is right. All it shows is that the premise or the reason given or one of the reasons or one of the assumptions made by the defender of relativism is self-refuting. So... Um, so let's move on to the third problem. Third problem with the argument from disagreement is that disagreement is overrated. That's going to sound weird that I'm, I'm saying that because I just gave you this long list of moral issues over which people disagree. But we have to ask ourselves a deeper question. What exactly is the disagreement over? So let me give you a, a, an example from a contemporary debate that will probably find its way to the U.S. Supreme Court very soon, and that's the issue of abortion. Um, the issue of abortion has been uh, an issue for virtually my entire, actually my entire adult life. Uh, Roe v. Wade was a Supreme Court decision that was decided, that was issued in 1973 when I was 12 years old. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember the 15th anniversary of Roe v. Wade in 1988. I had just gotten hired as a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I, I was very young, 27 years old. And I was asked to be on a panel discussion on should Roe v. Wade be overturned? And I had, at that time, I was, as I am now, pro-life, but I knew very little about the issue of abortion other than that I knew I was pro-life, but I didn't know anything about uh, the legal arguments and I didn't know anything about, really, about the philosophical arguments. And I prepared for that discussion, and actually, that was a change in my own career. I wound up then becoming very interested in moral and political issues and wind up writing a book five years later on abortion, defending the pro-life position called Politically Correct Death, 
That went out of print and I published another book in 2007 called Defending Life with Cambridge University Press. So it's, a, it's an issue that I've become uh, well conversant with. Uh, and the one thing that really stands out when you read the sophisticated defenders of abortion rights is they don't disagree with pro-lifers on the moral principle that it is wrong to kill innocent persons. Where they disagree with pro-lifers is on the issue of what is a person. Right? Or they disagree with pro-lifers on whether the unborn is actually innocent. I don't know if, how, if any of you have taken a class uh, on a more contemporary moral problems, but one of the uh, things that surprises, at least it surprises even pro-life students, is, is the, the way in which um, uh, defenders of abortion rights actually concede that the unborn human being is a human being. Because pro-lifers typically will trot out and, and, and correctly uh, the facts of fetal development and point out that uh, there's a continuity in human development from conception until birth and afterwards, and yet people still support abortion rights. Why do they do that? Well, they don't believe that the embryo and the, and the fetus exhibit certain characteristics that they believe persons exhibit. Well, what are those characteristics? Things like the ability to think rationally, to communicate in a sophisticated fashion. All these, they believe, are attributes that persons have, but not all human beings have. Now, I think that's a mistaken view. I think, it's, uh, I think that all human beings are persons because of their nature. And that what makes you a person is not what you do, but what you are. But that's a different argument for a different talk. Right? My point is that the reason why people that support abortion rights make that argument is they agree with pro-lifers that it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent persons. But to get out of the facts of fetal development, they have to justify abortion by excluding fetuses from personhood. And so what they argue is that fetuses are not persons. They don't disagree with pro-lifers on the moral principle. They disagree with pro-lifers on what is a person. Again, I think they're wrong. But once you understand that, you see, oh, there's a, there's a common moral belief but a deeper disagreement about the nature of human beings. And that's an area of philosophy which is called metaphysics. It deals with, it, metaphysics deals with a lot of different issues about reality, but one of them is, what is the nature of a human person? Do human beings have continuity over time? Is there an immaterial aspect to our nature and all sorts of other questions, right? So think about other issues, um, such as, um, uh, uh, debates about uh, about the nature of marriage, right? Uh, or even um, questions about um, debates about critical race theory or physician-assisted suicide. If you think about it, when people argue about those issues, don't they appeal to common moral principles? So someone will say something like, uh, this is unfair or this is unjust or... Uh, this is a good thing because it will relieve suffering, or this is a good thing because it will advance love or protect the vulnerable, right? So when people debate about these issues, they typically appeal to the same set of goods. Now, if you look at 
uh, the debate about marriage, right? There, the debate isn't about certain goods. It's about what is marriage, right? It's about this sort of fundamental question about human anthropology. And it's in a way, it's kind of parallel to the abortion debate insofar as it's a deeper metaphysical question about, about the nature of human activity and the nature of human beings as gendered persons, right? And so if you, so again, the, the disagreement is very real. I'm not denying that it's not a real disagreement, but it's really not at the end of the day, a moral disagreement. It's a disagreement about other questions, clearly important questions, deep metaphysical questions, but not necessarily moral questions. And so this is why the church, the Catholic church teaches in its catechism, and this is, gets to the question of disagreement that I, that I mentioned earlier in terms of how, how Aquinas and the church accounts for disagreement. So this is from the catechism. Uh, the church teaches that even though objective morality is known by all, it is, quote, not perceived by everyone clearly and immediately. In the present situation, sinful man needs grace and revelation, so moral and religious truths may be known by everyone with facility, with firm certainty, and with no admixture of error, unquote. So one of the things that the church teaches, and again, Aquinas teaches as well, is that in a sense, we all have an awareness of the moral law but we can be formed in a way where it kind of comes out differently, but it's gonna come out anyways. So think about something like um, my favorite films, The Godfather. I'm a big fan of The Godfather trilogy. And of course, the main characters in The Godfather, Michael Corleone, Vito Corleone, Sonny Corleone, these are all bad people, <laughs> right? They're members of organized crime family and do really bad things to other people, and yet, what do you find in The Godfather? Honor, <laughs> loyalty, right? A kind of ruthless efficiency for the sake of the family. So what you find there, even though people are doing evil, they cannot fully suppress every good. In fact, to facilitate the evil, they need to have some goods that they know are goods. And what Aquinas says is that that's right. So even when people do evil, even when they do bad things, even when they, they do bad things, they try to rationalize those bad things by appealing to certain goods. And think about the guy that wants to cheat on his taxes, right? What does he say? Ah, the government has too much money, or uh, I already paid my fair share, or, <laughs> or I need the money, right? They're all, you appeal to some other good, right? Or when people do things, let's say, uh, let's say a protest gets out of hand and they, you know, burn down a building, right? So it may be a good cause, but people will try to justify it by saying, well, there's insurance can take care of it, right? So even, even when people are doing things that are, that, are, that are good, they sometimes can't help themselves and do bad things, right? But even when they do those bad things, they try to justify them by appealing to what they think are good things, right? And so what Aquinas says, that's the natural law coming out. Right? And so when we engage in natural law reasoning, we have to use right reason. And this is why people make mistakes when they appeal to these goods in certain circumstances. And this is why the church teaches and Thomas Aquinas teaches that 
not only can we uh, get things wrong because of our passions or our selfishness, we can also get things wrong because we haven't been uh, introduced to special revelation. And this is what the church means when it's referring to either sacred tradition or sacred scripture. So even if you are, um, you have awareness of the natural law and you're not uh, driven by your passions, you can still get things wrong because you can't really figure out everything unless God reveals it to you. And that's why the church teaches, as i quoting from the catechism, uh, in the present situation, sinful man needs grace and revelation. So moral and religious truths may be known by everyone with facility, with firm certainty, and with no admixture of error. So, uh, so the point is that disagreement is something that actually is consistent with the natural law. Because human beings are not only rational, we're also animals. <laughs> Right? So the, the, the church teaches, as Aristotle and many other philosophers have taught, that human beings are rational animals. We have the ability to reason, we have the ability to know things by the uh, powers of our intellect, but we also are physical beings that can get hungry and we can lust and we can get angry, right? And all these things are part of us, right? So that's also part of the equation and that's why people disagree. <laughs> Right. So again, disagreement in a sense, if you sort of can, can account for this disagreement by appealing to sort of disagreement about other things and the passions, disagreement doesn't seem to be as pronounced as we may have thought. Right. Fourth, disagreement or the argument for disagreement leads to absurd consequences. So what's an absurd consequence? Sometimes uh, philosophers will call this counterintuitive consequences. But what's a counterintuitive consequence? It's just something that strikes you as wrong. So let me give you a non-moral example. So when I first got married, I, my wife wanted me to go to one of these marriage encounters. Have you ever heard of a marriage encounter? It's like you spend uh, uh, a weekend with, with your wife and other couples, and you you know you hear lectures about marriage, and then you write down your feelings, and things like that, and uh, and it's usually during football season, so you have to. Uh, and so I went to one marriage encounter, and and um, uh, I remember the speaker said something about I, I forget what it was, but I remember I got an elbow to the stomach from my wife because he said, or she, no, it was the wife. It was like the lead couple and, and the wife said something like, and here, I, again, I'm, I'm just making this up. I don't think she actually said this, but it was something akin to this, like a good wife washes her husband's socks by hand. It was something like really not something that would ever occur to you. <laughs> and so my wife looks over at me like, you better raise your hand and challenge that. And so, I remember because I raised my hand and whatever the person said, I responded by saying, what you're saying is wrong because my wife is good and she doesn't do that. So my answer, my, my answer was, what you said as a rule or a principle is counterintuitive. It's actually, because I already know my wife is good, that can't be right. 
Okay? So that's what a counterintuitive consequence is. Something that like, it strikes you immediately as wrong. And it seems to me that we should be confident in what we already have good reason to believe. So this is actually a good rule of thumb when it comes to handling skeptics. Like when someone comes to you and says, you know, you should doubt everything. You don't know your senses can, can be wrong, you know. And, and sometimes when a, ki- when, when a college kid takes his or her first philosophy class and they, they come across skepticism, they automatically get intimidated thinking, oh my gosh, I should doubt everything. Actually, that's, there's no reason why you should accept that as the first principle. Why not just start off with, you know what, there's lots of things I'm pretty sure I know, so skepticism can't be right. <laughs> In other words, don't, don't allow, don't get intimidated by your philosophy professor, in other words. Right? So what about, the, what about relativism and counterintuitive consequences? Well, um, or absurd consequences. So if moral relativism is correct, that there is no universal objective morality, then it is not wrong everywhere and always to rape another person, intentionally kill the innocent, torture children for fun, judge Mother Teresa as no better than Hitler, and abandon one's infant offspring to the elements if one finds them inconvenient. So if you're a relativist, these are consequences of that view. Now, you may be willing to bite the bullet, but for most people, these counterintuitive consequences in and of themselves is enough to reject relativism. It also means that there could be no moral progress, such as the eradication of chattel slavery, nor moral reformers, right? So think about it. To say that, let's say, a society or culture or an individual is getting better, right, is moving towards a greater, more moral, and more just existence implies an end to which the person is in fact ordered, right? So think about, um, uh, you, they're not really new, I, I'm gonna call them, I was gonna say the new atheists, but to you guys, they're not new atheists, right? So there were, there were writers in the early 2000s, uh, 2000, roughly 2004 to 2007, um, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett. Uh, 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 Alvin Plantinga, retired professor of philosophy from Notre Dame, used to call him the force, the four horsemen of the new atheism. Uh, not to be confused with the four horsemen of the apocalypse or the four horsemen of Notre Dame football. Um, and so these four thinkers, at least three of, of two of them, Hitchens and Dawkins, would often talk about all the wicked things done in the name of religion throughout human history. Now, what's interesting about that criticism is that that criticism only makes sense if there is a universal, unchanging moral code or moral rules, in other words, a natural law, that those people in the past and the present ought to know that they should obey. Right? You can't say that, let's say, the medieval church did bad things. Well, if morality is relative, maybe it was just good for them. Right? So the idea that you can criticize historical crimes committed by people in other cultures and societies throughout history actually presumes what? An objective morality. Right? An objective morality. And to say that things have gotten better or worse assumes what? an objective morality, 
right? You can't say that this guy or this gal was a great moral reformer unless there is an objective morality that they're helping their society to better achieve, right? So reformers and um, progress don't make any sense unless there's an objective morality. So that's the argument from disagreement. So let's look at the, the second argument, the argument from tolerance. Uh, some people argue because it's intolerant to believe that one's own moral views are right and others wrong. It follows that moral relativism, the belief that there is no one universal objective morality, best establishes tolerance. So in a nutshell, it simply means, look, um, the worst thing you can do is to believe you're right and other people are wrong, at least about one's moral views. So therefore, the right thing to do is to not, is to abandon the view that there's an objective morality. Now, it's a kind of, we it's a kind of weird criticism. Uh, before I go over the, the three that I have in the, in the notes, I, I'll just share with you a story um, that's a, it's, it's kind of an introduction to the three cr criticisms. Uh, it was, gosh, it was about, I think, 15 years ago, I was on a, a college radio show. I think it was Iowa State. Uh, where's Iowa State? Ames, yeah, so they're the Cyclones. So it's like, you know, what, we're the Pittsburgh Plague. You know, that, it's, it's weird. I don't know why they, they I know why, because there are cyclones throughout. And of course, there's the Miami hurricane, right? Um, so, and, and then there's the, what, there's the, the earthquake? Is it the, is there like a soccer or a, so, uh, in any event. So uh, I, I'm on this Iowa State radio station, and uh, I think it's Iowa State. And I'm there to talk about, I believe it was my book, Defending Life. It had just, so it had to be 2007, it had just come out. And my publisher had gotten the interview and, and the, um, the host of the show was, was hostile to the pro-life view that I was defending, although he was respectful. Uh, but he said, he said, look, the problem with your view, Beckwith, is you think you're right and everyone else is wrong. And I said, am I wrong in thinking this way? And he says, yes. And I said, well, you're in the same position as me. You think you're right and I'm wrong. We're precisely the same position. That is, you think you're right and you think everyone who agrees with me is wrong. So it can't be that what makes, <laughs> makes me a bad person is I think I'm right and everyone else is wrong because you are exactly the same position in reference to everybody else who you think is wrong, right? And of course, the problem has to do with not that, I mean, he thinks he's right. And so I said, let's just have an argument then, right? That's the right way to go. So um, there's several, let me go back to the critiquing the argument uh, from tolerance. So, um, so what's wrong with this argument? So one, one problem with this argument because um, remember, the, the, the argument of tolerance is we need moral relativism as a view to be embraced so that people can be tolerant of each other. The, pro the first problem is that it doesn't really establish relativism. In a way, it's saying that there is one moral principle 
that we all ought to abide by, and that is tolerance. So it kind of implies a moral objectivism. Um, I mean, it's, it's, in other words, if someone says to you, uh, everyone ought to be tolerant, well, that has all the earmarks of a universal moral principle that's objectively true, which, of course, is not relativism. It's moral objectivism. Second problem is, why would relativism necessarily establish tolerance? I could easily imagine somebody saying something like this. You know, I think morality is relative, but I think my culture is superior. <laughs> and so, because there is no objective morality, I think my culture and society can just like take over the world and do what it wants because there is no objective morality. <laughs> there is nothing, nothing follows from relativism that establishes tolerance. You could easily imagine someone being a relativist and being supremely intolerant, right? It actually doesn't establish, it, it, in other words, there's no direct connection between the two. Uh, third, the practice of tolerance seems valuable because it establishes certain goods, such as living at peace with others and better understanding those with whom one disagrees. So think about all the things, all the goods that you can acquire when you, let's say, are tolerant of another person. Here, I mean tolerant of another individual insofar as being willing to listen to them and to hear them out and to just talk with them, right? And to, let's say, uh, let's say if you're thinking about, let's say, religious tolerance, having a society in which people are allowed to practice their faith, right? All the, th all the goods that you can learn from that. So imagine, um, you know, you have a discussion with somebody with whom you disagree. Uh, well, you could actually learn something that you didn't know before, and that's a good. You may change your mind about something. You may change your mind about what you think about their views. You may actually be more... Um, confident about your own views afterwards, all sorts of goods. You could actually build a friendship, right? So you have the good of friendship. So it seems as though tolerance only makes sense as a good or a virtue if it actually improves you in some way or improves your community or improves other people. But to say that a person can be improved morally is to suggest that there are objective moral goods that we can know. And that's not relativism. It's something else. So conclusion. So I'm going to wrap up this very brief discussion of, of relativism and talk a little bit about, in a few seconds, about a, a theological question. And I'm going to have to be really brief with the theological question because I'm on open the floor for your questions. Um, but just I think relativists generally have their heart in the right place. Um, uh, they rightly recognize that there are, in fact, differences of moral beliefs and practices between individuals and across cultures, while at the same time wanting to advance the cause of tolerance and understanding. But I, I think as we've seen, though, the case for relativism is rather weak. And in many ways, the motive, what motivates people to be relativists are actually moral goods that relativism act, is, seems to be inconsistent with. So, um, 
now that it seems, assuming that the case I made against moral relativism is correct, that there are in fact objective moral principles or there are objective moral goods that in a sense we have a duty to obey or a duty to pursue. Yeah, so assuming that there is a kind of natural moral law, that, that there is this kind of universal objective goods that in, in one way or another, a wide range of cultures consistently pursue. So where does it come from? Do, do, do you need, does it require a divine source? And here I'm going to have to be very brief and uh, certainly are welcome to raise questions about this. Uh, I'm going to frame it as two, we have really two options. Uh, one option is that these moral inclinations that we have, these sort of desires to pursue certain goods, are wholly the product of unguided naturalistic evolution. That is, um, the reason why it seems as though these moral goods are so universal, even though they're manifested differently in different cultures, is that they just have survival value. Um, and that there really isn't a moral law, but that we are kind of tricked by our biology to believe that there's a natural moral law because to believe in a natural moral law in some way or another helps perpetuate the human species. And here I'm going to quote from, I think it's on your, your sheet, Michael Roos and E.O. Wilson. Uh, Michael Roos, retired professor of philosophy at Florida State. Uh, he's an atheist, but he's a friendly atheist. Uh, and uh, E.O. Wilson, I think is still alive, last I checked. Uh, He's in his 90s. So I say that because it could be, you don't know when someone's in their 90s. Uh, so he's a biologist, uh, Harvard, um, uh, a very distinguished scholar. Uh, he and, and Roos wrote this piece um, in, the in the 1980s, and it's since been republished in numerous anthologies. And it's a nice summary of this, of this view that I briefly uh, mentioned a few moments ago or reviewed a few moments ago. And this is what they say in that article, and it's, it's on your study sheet. They say, the question is not whether biology, specifically our evolution, is connected with ethics, but how. As evolutionists, we see that no justification of the traditional kind is possible. Morality, or more strictly, our belief in morality, is merely an adaptation put in place to further our reproductive ends. Hence, the basis of ethics does not lie in God's will. In an important sense, ethics as we understand it is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate. It is without external grounding. Ethics is illusory inasmuch as it persuades us that it has an objective reference. This is the crux of the biological position. Once it is grasped, everything falls into place. So what are they saying here? They're saying that human beings have these inclinations. In fact, in a weird way, I, I have my students, by the way, when I teach, I teach a course at Baylor called Markets, Morality, and Social Justice. And so part of the class deals with 
questions like relativism and then abortion. And then we talk about things like, um, uh, you know, free markets and whether free market philosophy is applicable to all aspects of life. But we, I have them read this article by, by Roos and, and Wilson, but they also read the first five chapters of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And the first five chapters, which is very brief, it's about 25 pages. Uh, it's the part one, it's the entirety of part one of Mere Christianity. Lewis offers a moral argument for God's existence. And the thing that the students notice is how amazingly similar Lewis and Roos and Wilson are in terms of agreeing that it seems as though all human beings seem to have these same kind of inclinations to the good. And, and, the reason, and, and what happens is human beings develop institutions to protect and preserve those goods. They come up with laws, laws against homicide, laws uh, on marriage and child rearing, and all these other things that tend to be similar across, very similar across cultures. There are, of course, differences. Right? And so Wilson and Roos recognize the same thing that Lewis recognizes and the same thing that I argued for in Critique of Relativism earlier in the evening. But yet they come to a different conclusion of its grounding and they argue that, look, given the truth of Darwinian evolution, it must be the case that our moral inclinations do not really refer to a real moral law. It has to be a trick played on us by our biology. Now, I'm gonna give you a critique of this view, and I wanna preface it by telling you that it's not a critique of Darwinian evolution. I think that there's nothing inconsistent with Darwinian evolution and Christian faith or, or Catholic, Catholic faith, and that's a view held by the church. What I'm critiquing is naturalistic evolution, the view that, um, that that our universe and the entirety of nature does not require a first cause. So the idea that, that there is a first cause, that there is a divine source of all existence, that there exists a being that has underived existence, to use a kind of technical uh, medieval phrase, uh, that view is, is the view I hold, that there is in fact a God, right? But the question here, or the, the view that, that, that Roos and Wilson are defending is that, that is a kind of brief for materialism. That is the view that all that exists is the material universe. And now why would, so this, so what's motivating them isn't, I think, and, and Roos, Michael would disagree with me on this. So I'll, uh, I think what's motivating them is that if in fact morality has a referent to something external to the natural world, that morality is in fact, can't be reduced to the physical. That of course implies that naturalism or materialism as a view is false. By the way, and I don't think it implies that Darwinism is false. And this is the mistake I think Roos and Wilson make. They think that uh, Darwinism entails naturalism or materialism. And I don't think that's true. So what are the problem uh, what are some of the problems um, uh, with this view? Um, the first problem, it, it's weird to say that, th that one has a duty to obey a law with no mind behind it. So mo a moral law 
that has no ground or justification need not be obeyed. So, so the story that Roos and Wilson tell may very well be true, right? So supposing that it's true, but then the question is, why should I obey it, <laughs> right? I mean, if let's say uh, you're playing, let's say we're playing Scrabble, and I happen, let's say the words happen to fall in a way where it says go to Baltimore. Do you obey it? Do you like get on a plane and go to Baltimore? Or supposing um, at lunch today, um, let's say I, I buy lunch at Jackson Airport and I buy a, a alphabet soup and um, I, I'm eating my soup and the letters are spell H-I, high. Does that mean that the soup is talking to me? On the other hand, if I'm eating soup and it says, welcome to Jackson, Dr. Beckwith, well, I, I, I'd have to, <laughs> I, I'd have to, you know, maybe a miracle, right? Uh, but the point is that the fact that something, in a sense, to say that there is a, a, something that is law-like, something that seems to be a form of communication, that is to say, something that has cognitive content that is asking me to be duty-bound to do something, it seems to me that I have to have some kind of duty to something in order to be required to obey it. So, so chance might possibly create the appearance of a moral command, but since no one is speaking behind such a command, why obey it? Another problem, and this is along the same lines of, of the previous one, is why be good tomorrow? Why be good tomorrow? So, um, the, the naturalist explanation or the naturalistic evolutionary explanation of morality is merely descriptive. That is to say, it merely tells us what behaviors people engaged in in the past that helps us or, or, or formed our inclinations today, right? But people in the past also did things that we thought were bad, right? So why should I follow only those things that we think are good today, right? So it, it, at, the, at best, the story that Roos and Wilson tell is a story that describes how we may have gotten these intuitions or inclinations or these feelings of morality, but it doesn't tell us why we should obey them, right? Third problem, and this, this is a, a subtle objection, but it, it, it's, I think, a powerful one. If one's belief in the natural moral law can be attributed entirely to survival value rather than a real moral law, why not apply the same reasoning to all our other cognitive powers? So think about all our other cognitive powers. We, we not only have beliefs about morality, right? So when I say, don't torture children for fun, most people believe that refers to something real. That is to say, there's a real moral law that says, don't torture children for fun. But there's other things that I believe too, like uh, Michelangelo's uh, David is stunning, or the periodic table, <laughs> right, which is on the walls here. Uh, so my, my cognitive faculty is not only informing about morality, but also about things like chemistry and beauty and truth and knowledge about all sorts of other things. Well, why can't I? 
why isn't it the case that my biology tricks me to believing in all those other things? Why select morality or the moral law as the one thing that my biology tricks me into believing? So another way to put it is if our biology tricks us into believing that there is a natural moral law, perhaps our biology tricks us into believing that our biology tricks us into believing there is a natural moral law. The problem with this view is, is, is that, again, and this is why I mentioned uh, Roos's and Wilson's motivation, is that is if there's, if there's something like a natural moral law that has a, a referent that can't be reduced to the physical world, that means there's something immaterial, and that means that there could be a divine foot that got stuck in the door. <laughs> and so I think that's what's motivating a lot of this. All right, wrapping it up. So it seems to me that the natural law, if it does exist, is the product of an intelligence. What sort of intelligence? Well, it has to be an intelligence that's not like us, a contingent being, or even something like Zeus or the Klingons or, or, or something that's, let's say, a more powerful version of finite beings. It has to be something that is the sort of being whose jurisdiction is the universe and who it can be the source of all things moral and real. And of course, that description best fits God. 